Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we laser weird and wonderful science directly into your mind. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Professor Judith Dawes uses random lasers to sense molecules. And from the 2008 archives, Kashina Allen talks about the science of power dressing and blue eyes. Random lasers. Judith Dawes is a professor of physics at Macquarie University and director of the Macquarie Photonics Research Centre, which spans the full range of photonic research from astronomy to nanotechnology. Professor Dawes will be speaking at the Frontiers of Science Forum on the 12th of March 2021 at the Concord Golf Club. The Frontiers of Science Forum is run by the Australian Institute of Physics, the Teachers Guild of New South Wales and the Royal Australian Chemical Institute. Judith's own area of research is nanophotonics how nanoparticles interact with light. We spoke by Zoom, and I began by asking her if she was working on a medical sensor using nanophotonics. Yeah, I've got a long-standing interest in applying photonics and applying lasers to areas of practical use, and so that includes medicine. I've worked in the past on lasers for microsurgical tissue repair, so looking down a microscope, actually welding the tissues together when you sever your finger or something like that. So I've got a background in applying lasers to different areas. And that means I need to work with the surgeons or in some cases, the dentists to do the clinical side, but I provide the laser expertise. And in this particular area, I'm interested in using my expertise in nanoparticles as well as lasers. So. What we've been working on for a while is how nanoparticles interact with light. And the nanoparticles, um, the ones that I'm using are actually gold nanoparticles. They're really interesting because they concentrate the light, they absorb the light, but they also reflect it. And so when I combine these gold nanoparticles with laser dyes, very bright red, brightly fluorescent dyes, the gold nanoparticles scatter the light through the dye. And it means that I can actually make a laser without putting mirrors on it. Usually when you build a laser, you have to put two mirrors and then you put a laser material inside the mirrors and you reflect the light backwards and forwards so that it can build up. My lasers build up without any mirrors because the gold nanoparticles scatter the light backwards and forwards inside the laser dye solution. So you can make... Well, a liquid laser. I can. I can make a liquid laser inside an optical fiber. I can make a liquid laser inside a drop. So with little tiny lasers, you can look inside human tissue? I'm not actually building these lasers inside human tissue. What I'm exploring is how you could introduce a fluid from the body and there is, you know, any number of fluids you could think of, and then explore what's in that fluid by the way it interacts with the laser. So this is not something where I build a laser inside the body. 
uh, someone else has built a random laser inside cancer tumours and has shown that the cells in the cancer tumour scatter the light differently than healthy cells do. And so you can distinguish maybe a cancer tumour from some other kind of tissue because of the way it behaves in a random laser. That's not what I do. So what I'm doing is taking a sample of some interesting biological molecule in solution, which might be, you know, in a a sample of fluid from the body, and then exploring how it interacts with the nanoparticles, and then using the laser to detect the interaction with the nanoparticles. And because it's a laser, it amplifies the signal. And I can get very sensitive detection because I use the amplification process of the laser to see more deeply, more, more basically. So I can, I can see over uh, five orders of magnitude the concentration of this particular biomolecule in a solution. And what sort of biomolecules might people be looking for? There's a range of molecules that you might be interested in. So I'm not the clinician, but I have read that dopamine is a particularly interesting molecule to study because it's a neurotransmitter in the brain. It's also the concentrations of dopamine in the brain are distinctive in Parkinson's disease. And so being able to monitor the the course of treatment, it's not just a question of diagnosis, it's also a question of monitoring the course of treatment and being able to detect the dopamine concentration on a regular basis at very low concentrations because it needs to be an extremely sensitive test. So that's why I was exploring the random laser as a test for it because it enables me to amplify the signal and make it more sensitive. So the gold nanoparticles in the dye are a random laser? Yeah, the gold nanoparticles plus the dye are the random laser. So I need the laser material. The laser material is my laser dye. It's bright red and it emits in the sort of orange-yellow. But I need the gold nanoparticles there too because they're the ones that scatter the light backwards and forwards and around to enable it to amplify the light because a laser is light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. It doesn't just happen with emission. It needs amplification. And that's what the random laser enables us to do is to amplify the light as it scatters around inside the material. You can make random lasers in all sorts of things. You can make random lasers in milk. You can use the the milk particles, the little colloids in milk, the little fat globules in milk, and they scatter the light too. But you have to add a laser material to the milk because milk itself is not a laser material. What does a lasing material do? It emits light. It emits light. So you have to add a laser dye to the milk. And so you get this sort of pink milky solution. You can make it laser. I have. (laughs) It's just fun. There is literally a paper in scientific reports where they used random lasers in milk to classify whether the milk had fat in it or not. And it's the sort of thing that makes kids go, maybe I could do that. (laughs) I can add dye to milk. Can make, can it, exactly. make it lays and emit light, you know. Mum, why doesn't my pink milk lays? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I can imagine exactly. that too. That sounds like fun. And, and it's distinctive. It, it, it responds differently to skim milk versus full fat. So the fat is acting as the mirrors? Yeah. The fat is acting as the scatter. It's just like my gold nanoparticles do. Yeah. You can scatter light from a lot of things. And milk is white because it scatters the light back at you. That's why it's white because the light is scattered back to your eye 
at all wavelengths by the particles in the milk. And are these random lasers used for lots of other things as well? Actually, it's a little bit of a niche area. It's not a widely adopted technology. It's mostly of interest because it is a whole regime of laser operation, which is very different from the one that we normally build with mirrors. And so you can explore a lot of parameters of how lasers work in these systems. That is what most of the work on random lasers has been, but there has been some work on building very bright but low coherent sources for low speckle imaging. So typically when you use a laser, it's very bright, it's good. But because it's coherent, all the particles come together. The light photons are bunched. They're coherent, basically. And so then when you do imaging with that, you tend to get what's called laser speckle. And it's a sort of a spottiness. It's a particulate. It messes up your image a bit. And so by reducing the laser speckle, by reducing the coherence, you can actually improve the imaging of all kinds of things, optical coherence, tomography, all sorts of different things. And so random lasers offer the opportunity to make bright emission, but also low coherence emission. And normally when you say laser, you assume it's coherent. Random lasers are different because the coherence is reduced because it's spread across the surface of the emission. And the light is not coming out in a direct beam, it's coming out in a sort of a glow. So it's a slightly different kind of laser, but it can still be quite bright, which means that you can use it for imaging. So it is a bit of a niche area. And how did you get interested in this area? It fitted with my understanding of plasmonics and I'm interested in how light interacts with the nanoscale. So nanostructures on a surface are often metallic structures. You can make tiny little antennas and you think of what a TV antenna looks like, scale it down. Scale it down so it's gold and it's microns in size. That'll work with light the way a TV antenna works with radio waves or TV waves. And so you can make these tiny little gold nanostructures and then they interact very effectively with light. And so I was interested in that idea, but that's based on a surface and it's it's actually quite complicated to manufacture. And so it's not very scalable, whereas nanoparticles can be scalable in different ways. And so you can work in liquid solutions with nanoparticles and you're not so constrained by the fabrication costs and the facilities and the and the scale of the problem. And so being able to work with nanoparticles gives us a lot of versatility that we didn't have on a surface. It's a more versatile system, but it lends itself to different things. So the surface plasmonic effects are very effective for something like a photo detector, whereas my structures are more interesting for something in a liquid or something in a gas. So did you start out being interested in these very tiny sort of interactions and devices at the beginning of your career? I started this... out as a chemist. Huh? So I've started out studying chemistry, but early on in my career, I started working with lasers and I was hooked. Even the ones in the infrared that you can't see, I was still hooked. And the thing that's fascinating about lasers is the way the dynamics of the laser works. It optimizes itself in ways that sometimes you don't yourself predict, but the laser works in a certain way and you suddenly have to go back and think, why did it do that? And then you can think through and you can work out why it did that because the light optimises its own properties in in many ways. It's a really interesting system to study. It's just magical. 
And it doesn't matter that you can't see the light. I've, much of my career I've worked with infrared lasers and you can't see them at all. It doesn't matter. It's still fun. And so I've really enjoyed working with light the whole way through my career. And I don't think I've had a position where I wasn't working with lasers in the last three decades. But I started off as a chemist. I started off in a chemistry degree and I have done research in both physics and chemistry. And, and some of the nanoparticle work actually bridges that gap quite well because it's a materials question. Nanoparticles have different properties than the bulk material. If I give you a slab of gold or if I give you gold nanoparticles, they're both gold, they're both pure gold, they're elemental gold. What's different is that the gold nanoparticles are all surface. There's hardly any bulk. The gold slab is all bulk with hardly any. Surface properties are different. And the surface is somehow, it's, it's a bit imperfect. It's not the proper crystal because it doesn't have a layer of atoms on top of it. So it's different. And surfaces react in different ways to everything around them, whether it's light or whether it's materials like liquids or, or water or something coming over the surface, it's different. And so nanoparticles are all surface and that makes them behave very differently in lots of ways. And so I think my ability to work with an understanding of the materials and an understanding of the nanoparticles, but also to understand how the light works with them is where my particular niche of research is. But I didn't start off knowing anything about nanoparticles. I knew about molecules and nanoparticles are not molecules. They're bigger, but they're often just a pure substance. They're, they're not necessarily an element. I mean, we're working on nanodiamonds. We're working on nanosilica particles, nanotitania particles, nanorubies. I tend to have expensive tastes, obviously, but <laughs> they're all very small quantities. So if a student wanted to follow your career path and get to work in lasers... Do they need to study a physics degree? They don't need to study a physics degree, but a physics or an electrical engineering or a physical chemistry degree would be what I would recommend. You need to understand how light works, and light is mostly a physics phenomenon. But you also need some sort of interest in what you're going to do with the laser, whether it's the materials end or whether it's a medical application or a dental application or a communications application in optical fibres. So if you've got an interest in the end user aspect of how you use a laser, you can also approach it from that end too because often your expertise in the application will then lend itself to getting involved with some use of the laser to do the application. Fewer and fewer people build lasers these days, but lots of people use lasers. And so there's a lot of opportunities to work with lasers without directly having a physics degree. If you have um, an area of interest where lasers might be applied, you can certainly get involved in using lasers in that area of interest. I've actually really enjoyed my career in photonics. Photonics is such a powerful enabling technology. You can apply it from communications, and we've worked in that, you can apply it in defence, you can build high-power lasers and take out satellites, you can build, and one of my students does that, you can do lasers for medicine, for dentistry, 
you can do lasers in so many different areas. You can use lasers to machine metal, to weld, to drill holes, all sorts of areas like that too. And so it's such a powerful technology. I really think there's a future for light and light can make a whole lot of things work better. Terrific. Well, Judith Dawes, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Professor Judith Dawes from Macquarie University, Director of the Macquarie Photonics Research Centre, talking about using random lasers to sense molecules. Professor Dawes will be speaking further on the subject at the Frontiers of Science Forum. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, from the 2008 archives, here's Kashina Allen with the science of power dressing. If you believe advertisements and popular movies, presenting a neat, tidy, fashionable image projects intelligence, breeding, and can help to land you the perfect job as well as your dream date. But this success may come at a price. It seems that much of our dressier clothing may create health problems. One issue is constriction. Only a few decades ago, men wore suspenders to keep their trousers up. Now most use belts which continuously constrict the abdomen during use. Tight belts have been proposed, controversially, as one of the reasons for the increase in rates of esophageal cancer. Stomach acids may be forced upwards, causing acid reflux and esophageal damage, which can lead to cancer. Studies on the wearing of back support belts used by people who lift heavy weights, such as removalists, have shown them to increase diastolic blood pressure. Extrapolating, this suggests that the constriction caused by a regular belt may also increase blood pressure, raising the risk of heart disease or stroke. In women, the health effects of old-fashioned corsets are well known. Less well known, however, are the issues associated with the wearing of modern bras. Like corsets, these also constrict the chest, though nothing like a corset. Pressure from bras has been shown to slow digestion, reduce autonomic nervous system activity, responsible for organ functioning, and interfere with the temperature regulation of the body. Tight underpants and trousers such as jeans constrict the groin and increase scrotal temperatures, reducing fertility in men. Even boxer shorts may prove too cosy and warm an environment for healthy sperm development. Neck ties, particularly when worn with a tightly buttoned shirt collar, can constrict blood flow across the neck. This has been shown to lead to increased pressure within the eyes and, by implication, within the head. Higher pressure in the eyes may increase the risk of glaucoma and increased intracranial pressure may increase the likelihood of strokes. But speaking of ties, let's also not forget how much of a breeding ground a necktie can be. Food spills, sweat, saliva and mucus from sneezing can provide an ideal environment for unhealthy bacteria. One particularly disgusting study I found looked at contamination levels between regular ties and bow ties worn by gynaecologists. It found no difference in bacterial levels after a day or two. Every time your tie touches your hands, your face or even your lunch, harmful bacteria can spread. Your feet are another obvious source of trouble. Fashionable shoes can lead to serious foot pain and deformity in later life. 
Studies of shoe choice have shown that most men and women choose shoes far too narrow and often too short for their feet, with a surface area of the sole often lower than the surface area of the bottom of the foot. Narrow shoes lead to corns, bunions and foot pain. Short shoes create toe deformities over time. High heels, those above 2.5 centimetres, are also associated with bunions and painfully callous skin. Poor shoe choice could also lead to higher risk of fall-related injuries. But then that's not just shoes. Tight skirts and low-slung pants and trousers may impede movement and may lead to more falls. Though on the other hand, flowing clothing can lead to burns if people are incautious around open flames or heaters. And then think of the added issues with cosmetics. Manicures, nail varnishes and acrylic nails, for example, all involve some level of exposure to organic toxins such as acetone and toluene. Linked to cancer, neurotoxicity and respiratory problems, these chemicals may impact the wearer. Certainly people with a heavy exposure to these chemicals, such as nail technicians, show slight but significant decreases in cognitive reasoning, memory and learning abilities. So does this mean that snazzy dresses are dumber, more deformed, spread disease and have lower IQs than slobs? I'm not sure I'm entirely convinced, but I might bring up these arguments when next told to spruce up. Women in general are not as strong as men, but with the right equipment adjusted to their capabilities, they can do just about the same work as men. Their employment therefore requires all the health and safety precautions necessary for men, plus some extra measures. Who are these women? Where did they come from? They worked in offices. They liked fun and music and peace. When we first went to work, we were told what was expected of us in the way of good health habits and safe practices. We were told that wearing proper, sensible clothing was a very important item in our new work, and the necessity for wearing the right apparel was pointed out to us. Long hair can cause an accident if it falls across the face and eyes and interferes with seeing your work. When working at top speed, as we all are, we can't wear high-heeled shoes. They catch easily, ankles turn, and the effort of balancing ourselves tires us quickly. Dressing sensibly like this, from shoes with wide, low heels to proper headdress, an attractive turban or a hairnet will give us protection where needed and help us work efficiently and safely. Who are these women? We are these women. And here is Kashina with some blue-eyed science. Recent research into blue-eyed men has shown that not only do they prefer blue-eyed women in photographs, they are also more likely to form a relationship with them than with women of any other eye colour. Since blue eyes are a recessive trait, blue-eyed parents should only be able to have blue-eyed children. Thus, by selecting a mate of the same unusual eye colour, one hypothesis suggests that men can easily spot an offspring of an affair, ensuring that the children they help raise are most probably their own. So flashing those baby blues may be good on the dating scene, at least if you're trying to net yourself a blue-eyed beau, but when it comes to vision, they may prove a bit of a disadvantage. But firstly, why do humans have different eye colours? It mostly comes down to the amount and location of melanin. Yes, the same substance which controls skin colour, and where it's found in the human eye. Pale eyes, such as blue, grey or green eyes, contain little melanin. Dark brown eyes, more. Which eye colour you get is primarily determined from genetic variation 
based on the eye colour of your parents. But how does your eye colour influence how well you see? The darker the eyes, the more light is absorbed as light waves pass through the eye, and thus less light is available to reflect within the eye. Light reflection, called scatter, can cause susceptibility to glare, such as from sun or headlights, and also to poor contrast discernment. Thus it seems that people with darker eyes may have better vision in high glare situations. Perhaps this makes them better night drivers, for example. This may also affect your colour vision. Here it seems that lighter eyes may provide some advantages. By allowing more light in, blue or grey eyes appear to make it easier to discriminate between colours. So it seems to me that blue-eyed people should really go for dark-eyed partners. This way one can pick the paint colours and the other can drive home at night. Thank you, Kashina Allen. The news will return next week along with an interview about exact sciences in antiquity. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambaka Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed this show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.